Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Julie Smolanski is CEO and president of Lifeway Foods, the company her parents founded to introduce kefir to the U.S. after immigrating from the former Soviet Union. She actually became America's youngest female CEO of a publicly held firm back in 2002. And she took over as CEO the day after her father suddenly passed away from a heart attack. Julie's been named a Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business, and she's an advocate for victims of sexual violence. And she's produced several documentaries on the subject and also co-founded a nonprofit called Test 400K, an organization dedicated to advocating ending the backlog of 400,000 untested rape kits in the United States. Last but not least, she's the author of the amazing Kiefer Cookbook. Quite simply, she is an entrepreneurial force and an inspiration and role model for women of all ages. Welcome, Julie. It is so great to have you here. We are huge fans of Lifeway and your personal story and your family story and the brand story. So it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a privilege to be with you. So let's start with the brand story, the family story, your story. And, you know, I go back, you became CEO at age 27. And unfortunately, it was the day after your your father, who was the founder, passed away suddenly. And so literally the day after he passes away, you have to take over as CEO. How did you manage that mentally, emotionally? Walk us through what what that was like and how ultimately you got through that period. Right. Well, it was incredibly traumatic, um, sudden. He died of a sudden heart attack. So overnight in the prime of his life at the age of 55, um, I had worked with him side by side for about five years. Um, and, you know, in, in the immediate moments, it was just such a shock. It was really, really a shock. And um, I, I think I was really running on adrenaline for quite a long time. You know, it, it took me a long time and I would say years to feel like I kind of stabilized and was among the living again. Um, initially, you know, I, I felt like failure was not an option for me and for this company. Um, we were growing rapidly, you know, Kiefer was just starting to hit mass market. Um, we just started getting into some big retailers across the country. At the time we were a $12 million business with about 70 employees. Um, and, uh, it, it was really a, a great time for the company. And, you know, when I thought about the story of my family and how hard my parents worked, we were refugees from the former Soviet Union. We were um, the first of 48 families that were allowed to settle in the United States in the height of the Cold War. So we settled in Chicago in 1976. I was one. My parents took all of the risks it was completely unknown what was behind the iron curtain. This was before the internet. There were no phones. You know, they, they really risked a lot. I mean, I, when I think about just even the stories of like the things that inspired my parents to leave, my father 
uh, couldn't even listen to a Beatles album or a Led Zeppelin album, which he found through the black market in the Soviet Union. And just by owning those albums, he could have been arrested for that. And, you know, he re- he was really angered by that and that that music and that stifling of, of you know, artists and culture, it really bothered. It pissed him off. I mean, he was really angry, I would say. And the day when I was born, I think it crystallized for him and him and my mother uh, created a plan to escape and defect. And a year after that, we left we defected in the middle of the night. We were in exile and lived in Rome for three months while we waited for our papers to come through. This is a very similar experience that many immigrants share, many refugees share. Um, and, uh, you know, when we landed in Chicago, we had $116 in our pocket, zero language. There were no translators at the time because we were the first of that community to come and settle in Chicago. And it was really scary. Um, you know, my my mother would walk, you know, see signs on the street that would say hot dogs. And she thought and she looked at the dictionary and said, oh, my God, where did you bring me in America? They eat dogs like you know, it was just wild. And she learned English watching General Hospital. And, you know, it was it was um, really, really challenging. And uh, they they really worked hard. And um, it was it was painful. It was a very painful uh, experience, but very inspiring, too. And, you know, when I in those moments of, of losing him, I just did not want to let all of that go in, you know, for nothing. And at the moment, you know, that night when he died and uh, the friends gather at the family's house, at my mom's house, my parents' house, um, and his best, one of his best friends, like a few feet away from me said, not to me, he was talking to somebody else. There's no way a 27 year old girl could run this company. That's it. It's over. Sell your stock. It, the company is done. And that statement really angered me. And it's almost, I would say I, I have gratitude for it because it fueled me. It really inspired me even to this day. I always say thank you. Thank you to the haters. Um, you that, sound like Michael Jordan. <laughs> right, right. You know, well, that's the thing. And when you're up against those challenges, it really um, shows, you know, who you are. And I could have crumbled and said, yeah, you're right. You know, what business do I have running the company that let's just sell it on the dime, you know, for pennies it's over. But I didn't, you know, I thought about my parents. I thought about the challenges that they went through here. I was raised in the United States, um, working with my father, knowing what his business was about very, very closely. Um, and had you know much more resources than they did when they settled in Chicago at the same age that I was um, with you know so so you know I thought about those things I really you know kind of weighed them all out and my father like pushed me to be a leader he believed in me he told me that I would be the president he told me that I could do anything I wanted he told me that he would make me a senator he saw uh you know a fire in me that even I didn't see and I think he really helped me um believe in myself and like paved a path for me that I didn't even know existed. And he loved to trigger me and push me and like, you know, maybe in the wrong way, but, you know, he forced me to learn how to fight and fight for myself. 
Um, and while I wouldn't really recommend his way of doing it, it, it worked for me and it got me to where I was. And so, you know, it, it was incredibly painful. It's still really, you know, hard to even, uh, believe that it's been, you know, now, uh, almost 18 years. Um, and I just think, you know, I, I guess the adrenaline got me through and it's, not an unsimilar moment to what we're all going through right now. I think, you know, we're experiencing collective trauma, collective grief, collective mourning. And, uh, it, it is, uh, a process that we have to work through. And so how did you get through it then? And then how are you getting through the grief we're experiencing COVID-19? So, yeah, I mentioned before the interview, I, I lost my father when I was 19, suddenly heart attack, you know, here, then gone. Um, for me, it was, you know, in shock and then uh, cried straight for a couple days. And then I was 19 and then sort of just, you know, college, basketball, friends, alcohol, lots of things. And I sort of got right. through it, but I didn't have the I didn't have the weight of a company. And, and, in, right. and in retrospect, I probably led to me drinking way, way too much in college. And for you, it, it, it. It, it took a while. It took a while. Um, and I, and, but I had no real responsive responsibility. So I'm curious, like, how did you, it sounds like, you know, you, you had the fire to not let the company, you know, go under with that terrible comment made by that terrible person, which ultimately, um, probably uh, really push you in a way you wouldn't have been pushed. Uh, but how did, how did, I'm just curious, like, as you talk about well-being and you know, how do you take care of yourself? How do you yeah. get through that? Because it's one thing to just be distracted by work, but then like. Right, yeah. right. Well, you know, and I, I always have been one who is an overachiever, type A personality. I want to control all the things around me. I've always been like a leader, always been a, like a boss. Um, even early on working in my parents' business uh, from the age of, I don't know, from as long as I can remember, two, three, four, five, I was already in my parent. My, my mom opened a little deli uh, two years after settling. She saw this, that there was a need for food, ethnic food, that all these other immigrants were going to be coming. So anyways, I was always like, I loved working. I loved um, being of help. And so that was very natural to me. And, you know, honestly, it was my self-care routine that helped me get through that that time and continues to be, you know, what, what I have today going for me is uh, a toolbox of kit of things that I can go to that I know work for me that have helped me in the course of my life. Um, and, and, and that self-care toolbox has been the thing that has helped me in those very, very challenging days. Um, it has been my ability to go get a sweat, whether that's running yoga, not as good on meditation, but meditation, um, biking, uh, you know, the, it is those kinds of things. And what we're really talking about is boundaries and being able to say, this is important. I love myself enough. And it's important for me to put these boundaries around my life and uh, allow for this self-care, self-love. Because I think a lot of times we have guilt around it. We think, oh, I can't. I'm going to put myself last. 
Um, and I, I, you know, initially, yes, I do. And even now it's like responding to crisis is first we're, we're in a crisis zone. Um, it's like we're in a war and, uh, the adrenaline is the thing that kind of pushes you and, you know, allows you to work those longer hours, but that's not sustainable. That's okay to get that cortisol uh, response right away, to be able to do the work, to be able to respond, to listen to your gut, to listen to your intuition on what needs to be done, you know, to triage. Um, but then after the initial crisis, you start to, you need to stabilize and find that balance because it is not sustainable. And I, I know that even for myself and I, the first, um, the first like three weeks of this crisis now was exhausting. I, I felt exhausted and I knew it wasn't going to be forever. I knew, you know, that eventually things would stabilize or I hope they would, but it was, it is a trauma that we're experiencing all of us. And, um, we saw that like this Google search for self-care was up like almost 500% in the days of this crisis unfolding, which goes to show you how much people are seeking solace and comfort in a time of uncertainty. And um, I think I, I have great pride in the fact that we are a company that is there to respond to that and, and help create accessible tools and help democratize self-care because uh, it's important for every single one of us to do this. Well, functional food and kefir are definitely very important right now as we talk about self-care and I also, before I move on to the to, to food and we'll talk about that, I, we, we have to stop and talk about your parents because look, so many people want to start businesses. So many people want to be entrepreneurs, maybe less now these days because I feel like it's tougher than ever. I had uh, Kimball Musk on the, the podcast a couple of weeks ago and, and he likened being an entrepreneur to eating glass sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> if you liked eating glass sandwich, uh, but to leave the Soviet Union in that time period, essentially, like th th that was a big deal. Then to find yourself in America, not speaking English with essentially no dollars in your pocket with a, with a, with how old were you were a year old? Like, yeah. Essentially with a newborn, like it's, it's hard enough just flying with a, with with a young child in the domestic United States when you speak the native language. Uh, yeah. And so if I think about that and then start a business from scratch and essentially visionaries, pioneers in the space that were talking about functional food and kefir way before anyone was talking about that in natural products. Like, I'm so curious, like, what was it about them? What, what was the secret sauce that they were yeah. able to do that? Because that is one hell of a success story, whether you were yeah. born in America, let alone escape the Soviet Union when they did. It's true. Um, I, my father so strongly believed in the American dream and the opportunities that are afforded to everyone here. Um, he really believed that if you work hard, if you had a good idea, that anyone could achieve anything they wanted. He told me, Julie, you could do anything you want except be the president of the United States only because he, only because I was not born here. But there, otherwise, there are so many jokes we can make about that at the moment. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we won't go there. True. We won't go I, there. <laughs> anybody really could be the president of the United States. You're born in the United States. I was not. So he, he, you know, but literally it, it's just, 
um, his, you know, belief, like unlimited belief and opportunity. He was so fascinated with America and the potential that the potential that any person has here and, and that you really could achieve um, those whatever your dream is. He believed that. So that was one thing. He saw opportunity everywhere he went, every business, every, I mean, if he could have 10 lives and start businesses and help other people, he would. He loved, you know, having intellectual conversations around brands, around other companies, around operations, around how to help different businesses, around marketing. You know, he was fascinated with the concept of marketing that didn't really exist in the Soviet Union. There were no brands <laughs> everything by the state. Um, and, and he was so ambitious, you know, he had such a drive to achieve, uh, he wanted that for me too. Uh, he felt, you know, oppressed in the Soviet union and that, um, oppression and his, uh, inability to go higher in his career was really bothersome. I mean, anger. I mean, he was, it was pure anger, um, that he had, that he was so smart he was a mechanical engineer, um, you know, he had a master's degree and, uh, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted the universe, honestly. And, and he wanted that for, for us. So I think those were the things that kind of pushed him and give, gave him the passion. And, you know, the thing about Kiefer specifically, this is a staple in the Soviet Union and in in that part of the world. This is a 2000 year old product that was passed down generation to generation by word of mouth. Um, people who consumed it lived into their 100 years of age and they attributed, you know, their their longevity to their consumption of kefir. And he himself had Crohn's disease. So for him, he felt like this was something that healed his body and was necessary for him to sustain his well-being. Um, and when he landed in the United States and while he saw so much ample food where he came from scarcity, um, but what everybody had was a humble lunch of a quart of kefir and a loaf of bread. That was a standard lunch. And he missed his kefir so much in the United States. And he said, you know, America has everything, but it doesn't have kefir. And he saw this as a as an opportunity. And I would say that's the thing is like fill something that, you know, fill a pain point or fill uh, a need for something that doesn't exist. And nobody knew that they needed kefir until, you know, he started marketing it. But it was because of our nomadic lifestyle or our nomadic lifestyle immigration, the concept of a melting pot that we can bring in all of these, you know, ancient self-healing um, ingredients, functional foods. And every every culture has them, whether you're from India or Japan or, you know, Mexico, we all have our functional superfoods. These are our grandmother's recipes. You know, that's why we're eating garlic like, like crazy right now. And, you know, everyone's like incorporating these various foods um, because it is a it is a place of self-care and there is so much great science that supports the the use of functional foods that are made from from the earth <laughs> you know it, it, you mentioned functional foods and they're so in vogue now they're so top of mind now but you know we think turning back the clock when lifeway was launched they, they weren't a thing if you will and then and i as think a matter of 
fact, it was the height of the fast food movement. You know, know. this is in the <laughs> mid 80s. It was, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's, Burger King, and like everyone, that fast food was dinner every day. And I'm going to talk about kefir because something that I love that I've seen with Lifeway is just, and I'm curious how much of it's like the mindset that you have, your your father had, where you where you say some say it's the cousin of yogurt, but we call it the champagne of dairy. And when I first read that, I'm like, okay, that's brilliant, but like, there's a mindset shift in there, and and. You talk about like cousins, <laughs> yogurt, and like champagne of dairy. Like they're two completely different things. And so much of it has to do with mindset. Like, can you talk right. a little bit about that and like getting yeah. people to change their mindset around kefir and just like the mindset I feel like you and your dad have and it allows you to succeed? Yeah, well, um, you know, we think it's the gold standard of uh, fermented food products and fermented dairy. Um, there is an effervescence that is experienced there. You know, the, the product itself is effervescent. Uh, the bacteria, the probiotic bacteria, um, when it's inside of the milk and it is inoculating and fermenting, that process of fermentation creates that effervescence, which is where the champagne piece comes in. But champagne is considered, you know, an elegant, um, a, an elegant drink. There's a sort of connotation with it. It's the gold standard. Um, and we want to convey that as well, that this is the gold standard of fermented foods. It's a separate and distinct um, product from yogurt. This is not drinkable yogurt. This is not yogurt. Kefir is a distinct line of pr- special probiotic um, bacterial cultures that, that are completely unique to this product. So it's not like any drinkable yogurt can just be kefir. And it, we've, and the other thing that is a um, little frustrating is sort of the wild west on food labeling here. Um, kefir by the International Dairy Federation. And we have to have standards for there not to be confusion in the marketplace and for people to know what they're getting. You can't just, you know, um, hijack a word and, you know, start using it and especially around dairy, but you cannot have a non-dairy kefir technically there that doesn't exist for something to be called kefir by the international dairy federation and standards and the FDA agrees. Um, it does have to be these specific bacterial cultures, the unique strain of the, the 12 bacterial cultures, um, inoculated in a lactating mammal source. Um, so if you have some kind of other bacterial product, you know, probiotic product, uh, in a non-dairy form, that's just going to be a non-dairy probiotic drink, but it's not going to be kefir. So I think it's important for people to know that, uh, just so that they know what they're getting and, you know, that the research when they're reading that, you know, kefir does X, Y, Z through the medical science journals, that it's actually the dairy kefir that's doing that. And the research has been done on. So that's really important. But yeah, I think, you know, his, his curiosity, um, an interest in immunity in this product, the history of it, you know, he learned everything about the history of this product for the last 2000 years. And that's everything from, you know, being able to survive scarcity and war and famine. There was even a botched kidnapping of a princess in the history of Kefir. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, very interesting, fascinating story. I touch upon it in the Kefir cookbook, if anyone's interested in really nerding out on the history, it's all in there. Um, 
but yeah, so, you know, he was fascinated with it. And then, you know, what was even further interesting was that our ancestors, um, my ancestors, what they knew intuitively in their gut was that, you know, Kiefer made them feel better. And in 1908, Eli Metchnikoff, who is considered the father of immunity, he won the Nobel Prize for his research around the, the benefits of kefir on the human body. He was the first to really study this, and he spent his entire life dedicated to educating people around the benefits of kefir and fermented foods. Um, and he had ran many experiments and whatnot, and, and he, he was originally a zoologist, so he had access to animals, and that's where he first did his studies. And then he moved on to human, you know, human test studies. But, you know, we are still building upon that research every day. We're still learning about the gut. It's completely fascinating um, about about what the gut does for us. We're just starting to learn about our microbiome. We're just starting to understand bacteria and how we build immunity. You know, it's not a check the box kind of thing. It's an ongoing investment. Um, but the gut today is considered like the second brain. And many researchers believe it's actually the primary brain. Um, we're now learning that not only does the gut control immunity, 70 to 90% of immunity comes from the gut, but also serotonin, mental health. We're learning mental health comes from the gut as well. And that 90% of serotonin comes from the gut. And so now more than ever, it is so critical that we are aware of these benefits um, and that we consistently replenish that microflora. You know, I, I'm very concerned with all the hand sanitizers and all the cleaning that we're doing um, and all of the sterilization of, of our environments and bodies that we're doing, because that's very, very disruptive to the microbiome and to our own internal uh, bacteria. That, that is actually how you build, which is why they're talking about the antibodies, how you build your immunity is by um, exposing yourself to bacteria and then having your body fight that. If you no longer give your body to start fight, you know, fight the outside environment, your body starts to attack itself, which is why we saw this rise in autoimmune disease. Uh, many doctors, many researchers believe that all of these, you know, the, the explosion of autoimmune diseases are because of this hyper cleanliness that, you know, that we have in our society. And now I fear it's even even more so than ever. So we really, really have to be careful. You know, the things that disrupt the microbiome are things like travel, which we're not doing a lot of, but travel, um, antibiotics, hand sanitizers, antibacterial soaps, stress, alcohol, different medications. These are all things that disrupt the microbiome. And that's why a lot of times the initial first reaction to a lot of those things is a gastrointestinal response, an overactive gastrointestinal response or the opposite, diarrhea or constipation. And so, you know, it is so, so, so critical that we restore and put a diversity of bacteria into our bodies. And that's all fermented foods, kimchi, you know, various sauerkraut or fermented vegetables, again, fermented foods. These are ancient um, foods that uh, time after time show tremendous benefit to the body uh, and, and no risk. You know, there is no risk in eating healthy food that offers protein, vitamins, nutrition. You know, this is a good thing for the buck when you're talking about your nutritional food choices. I, I love everything you just said. And right. the, the hand sanitizer conversation I've had very frequently in the past couple of weeks, because thinking about it this way, it's sort of 
the cost of living at the moment. You know, if you travel or you, you just have to use it. But what will be the long-term implications with regards to our biome, our skin biome, the, the microbiome? Yeah. And and there there will be implications. And, you know, it's not like a uh, antibiotic, probiotic relationship where, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you have to take an antibiotic and then you can take probiotics and kefir and so, and you can do all the things to rest- restore your gut. Like, I don't know if we're, taking the same approach to our skin at the moment and our hands. And that's concerning. Um, So concerning to me. I do believe we're going to see an explosion of these like super bugs and super resistant bugs and things like that. I think there's going to be mutations and things like that in the long term as we evolve. And it is very scary. And I do think that we, I listen, hand sanitizer is great. If you are in a place where you can't wash your hands, if you're in a, you know, handshaking line, I remember back in the day when I used to, when we used to have those, right. Just a couple weeks ago, um, we did, you know, that that's when you use hand sanitizer when you're in a remote location and you can't or in a hospital setting, you know, those are the times when you really use hand sanitizer, but day to day. Soap and water work, work great, not antibacterial soap, though, um, because we don't want to k- kill that bacteria. But yeah, I mean, and so then the next response is, well, we better be consuming a lot of fermented foods to help restore that microflora that we need. Um, but yeah, it is absolutely going to be very, very interesting to see the long term impact on the hand sanitizer use uh, for all of us and how that evolves from like the superbug or resistance. So with regards to functional food, you know, kefir was truly one of the first to be functional. And, you know, when you think about function today in a COVID-19 world and, you know, it's a little bit of a buzzword with food, uh, you know, what trends are interesting to you? Where do you think functional food, if you will, is going to be going in the next year or so in in this new evolved COVID-19 world? Well, you know, I don't, I I think that it's going to be a return to the things that we know, a return to what our grandmothers told us, you know, a return to chicken soup, (laughs) a return to vegetables and produce and um, a return to the basics, uh, the the kind of essentials. I think when we think about functional foods, it's, um, it's about the things we know, you know, an apple a day. Uh, it is, it is that food is medicine and it can either be the slowest poison or the fastest, you know, healer really. And, um, so, so I think that these are the, the, the kind of kind of traditional ancient food groups that are, are ancestors consumed, um, and that, that we know are ancient in, in other cultures and have worked will be the, the, what we consider functional foods today. I think it's going to be less about, you know, the trendy, like collagen and charcoal and, you know, some of those things, uh, but, you know, and, and I think it's hard to be talking about like functional foods from a diet perspective or, you know, the keto lifestyle or paleo lifestyle. I think that sounds 
a, a little bit tone deaf right now when people are really just surviving. And um, I think we need to have a lot of compassion with ourselves. You know, there's a return to comfort foods, um, you know, a lot of banana breads, baking and baking a lot of uh, bacterial like sourdough baking, um, kind of a, a return to a more humble uh, diet, I think that that is based on the foods from the earth and, and products like kefir and, and, uh, and, and it could be other things like, you know, matcha from Japan or soy from Japan, or, you know, the, these various ingredients, turmeric, um, these are, you know, ingredients that have ancient history and, uh, a decent amount of science behind them. I love that. I love what you said. Your line food can be the slowest poison or the fastest healer. Make your, yeah. you know, it's at the end of the day, make your food count, enjoy it, go back to the basics, eat real food and make sure there's actually some nutrients in it. Absolutely. And <laughs> and it's really great to see so many people cooking too. You know, I think that's another thing that this, um, this time has shown us that we actually know how to take care of ourselves and we actually can learn how to cook. It's become, you know, very user friendly. You can watch a thing on YouTube or, you know, follow your favorite. Somebody is doing some kind of uh, quarantine cooking online. So these recipes are, I think, really accessible. You know, we've kind of reduced the the fear and panic around cooking. People have gotten comfortable in the kitchen. They're comfortable using ingredients. Um, and, and I think that people are finding some joy in that and gathering it, it we're, we're just enjoying a meal on their own and, and working the food and going through the process. I think it's also like a stress reliever in some cases, while it could be stressful to cook, but for many people, I think that they find the process of going through a task and following a recipe as a, a nice distraction. Um, with a nice glass of wine too, of course. <laughs> so also in, in the context of COVID-19, something that's been taken away physically, although I think a lot of us are trying to experiencing, uh, experience it digitally is community. And that's something that's really important to you and the LifeWay. So what does yeah. community mean to you in, in the context of where we are today in this world? Well, I mean, community to me is uh, a place to uh, that we a place where you can hold space for uh, groups of people, and you know, community. I define it in different ways. Um, to me, it's like uh, you could have the community that you live in, your neighborhood. It could be a virtual community that you've built, um, but community is there to support one another, to provide a place of belonging, to be a place to validate each other, to come and ride, you know, support each other's needs, um, and, and be there for one another now more than ever. I think the, the community, we realize that we are not alone and that's important for people to know that, that they are not alone. Community is more important than ever before. And uh, we're alone, but we're together, right? I keep seeing that alone, but together. And that's really important because it is really isolating. You know, being uh, in, in this current situation, it's very isolating. Um, but, you know, we find people are isolated even when they're out socially. You know, it, it, isolation is something that is... Um, it, it just is with us and it, it doesn't have you, you could be isolated, but be in a group of people. So anyways, I think it's incumbent on us to 
be there for our communities. It has been always for me, uh, a place where I find comfort. You know, I have like different communities and, you know, based on various needs that, that are, um, beneficial to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, my, my parents, I, I think I first recognized the power of community when I was a little girl and my mom, uh, opened her store. She opened the first Russian deli here in Chicago. And it was a place where, um, you know, immigrants came and they would gather for a pierogi and some tips and advice about life in America. And my parents would help them, you know, learn about how, how you rent a car, or buy a car. How do you rent an apartment? Where do you send your kids to school? These are all things that, you know, people didn't know how to do the, the just basics of life. Um, and, and so her store became like town center, town square, uh, and a place for community to gather. Uh, and I, I think of this, this experience that I had with, with my, my family and sort of in the Russian community. And I have, I think projected that into other places that I find, you know, community, whether that's an entrepreneurial community or a female run business community, or, you know, my local Chicago community or the world, you know, you can make community, whatever you want it to be, but, um, it is more important than ever before. And I think we recognize like we are only as strong as our community is and that the weakest links in our community, um, you know, need support, but, but we can't be strong if the whole community is not strong. And, you know, that's why it's a global pandemic. It's like more than ever, we see the, that we are, our, our safety, our security, our wellness, our health is tied to one another. Well, when you talk about safety and security and support, uh, it, it, you've done tremendous, tremendous work on raising awareness on sexual assault and, and you've talked about publicly you've survived and triumphed over sexual assault and you know let, let's talk about that for a minute and, and how you got through that and how you're looking to help others and just talk about you doing some incredible work there talk about what you're doing to raise awareness Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, first of all, thank you for saying triumphed because I feel like it's a lifelong journey. It's, I don't think it's like a you're done, check the box kind of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, if, what what I've done is spend most of my life uh, working and, and being an advocate and an activist in the space. Initially, my work started with, uh, well, like I helped write the first teen dating violence curriculum here in the city of Chicago. I then went on to become a rape crisis counselor during college and have continued to do work in that space. And uh, I launched a, um, a nonprofit called Test 400K, which uh, was the first nationwide uh, nonprofit to highlight the backlog of untested rape kits in the United States. There were 400,000 untested kits. And, you know, it became important to me to, as, as part of my journey, to be not only an activist, but work on advocacy as well. And, um, you know, I've worked on campaigns with the White House, with the Obama White House, and um, a number of other, you know, projects I've worked on, documentary films. Um, I've done a lot of work in this space, but it, it became really important for me to 
um, I would say is part of my healing, but also that I knew that, you know, this is an epidemic. It's a global epidemic and violence against women impacts like 30% of women in the, in the world. That's, that's everybody. It's insane. It's, it's, it's insane. It's a, it's a hidden epidemic and it's highly stigmatized, highly, um, taboo to have talked about it up until the Me Too movement. And uh, there were very few people talking about it. But, you know, I always felt like there were other uh, girls and women behind me that, you know, even though it was uh, hard for me to, you know, talk about it or or to um, even not my own personal part of it. Um, but just to even talk about it from like a factual news perspective, even that was hard. Um, but it became like really important because I knew that so many people were experiencing it. So many young girls were experiencing it, um, and teenagers and and adults. So, you know, it, to me became like, do I want to you know, survive? And what is the story I want to leave to my children? Um, What kind of world do I want to leave them? And I, you know, learned a lot about my fight or flight response. And I have a strong fight response. And to me, this was this was my fight uh, was to push back against this. And, you know, I also recognize that I have a tremendous privilege that many women around the world don't have. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Bangladesh with Every Mother Counts. Um, Christy Turlington founded the organization. And, you know, I actually was, I was already a CEO, but I wasn't really talking about these issues yet um, in in this role. And um, I spent some time with, you know, girls, 14 year old girls in the slums of Bangladesh. And I honestly felt that I had more in common with these girls and their feelings than I did with 90% of people that I come in, in contact with here in the United States. Um, and it was because, you know, that, that shared experience of being a woman is, is the knowledge that you have an impending risk just by being born a girl to be hurt, to not have your safety, you know, secured. You are at risk for violence when you are born as a a girl. So I recognized that I had all this privilege and then an obligation as, as my career took off at Lifeway. Um, I felt that this was now really important for me to put my face to this issue and to publicly, you know, disclose this. And it, it, I was an executive producer on a film called The Hunting Ground, which um, highlighted rape on college campus and the cover up of that. And five days, Lady Gaga wrote the song for it. And five days before the Oscars, it was nominated for an Oscar. Um, five days before the Oscars, they asked if I wanted to join Gaga and uh, 50 survivors on stage. And of course, I said yes. And, you know, I spent like 
a long time, years agonizing over how I would, you know, disclose this or, or what w- would it be? Would it be an article or an op-ed in the New York Times or a novel? Or well, I didn't know. And here the moment just presented itself. And so I shared the stage and that was sort of like the coming out of it. And I guess things have never really been the same for me since. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think, you know, now I'm in just a place where I can shine a light on it and, you know, bring it to, um, awareness in ways that I couldn't before. And that there are young women that need to, that are, you know, in the very early stages of their trauma and they need to know that you can go through it and move forward past it it is possible to thrive. Um, I think that's really important. You know, when I was growing up, I had no role models of survivors. It was not talked about. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. It was like the worst, you know, dehumanizing experience and nobody to look to as an example of what that looks like except Oprah. And I only knew of Oprah as a survivor and I hung on to her for dear life. I thought, well, if she's doing okay, well, I mean, maybe I could, you know, get through this and survive this. So, um, I continue to think about my role in that process even today. And, uh, I, you know, take it really seriously. And even in this COVID crisis, um, you know, for a minute there, I thought, oh, you know, I'm just going to focus on kefir now. And, you know, I don't, I don't have to put this into a box for a minute, but you know, the reality is that home is not a safe place. And for many people quarantining, um, they could be quarantining with an abuser. And in times of recession, we know that domestic violence surges, um, in quarantine, we've already seen that there's been a record of uh, calls to the national domestic violence hotline, um, a surge of over 300% around the world, uh, calls to the sexual assault to, to rain the national, uh, rape, uh, sexual assault hotline is up like 70%, another call record call volumes by first time callers, many children. So, you know, the needs, of responding to this issue are going to be so great. And we really do need to provide as many um, touch points and and stories for people to know that they're not alone, that there are resources for them even now, even today, even in quarantine, even in the COVID crisis, that there are people that are willing to listen to them, that want to hear their stories, that see them, that um, are there to help them. um, And that, uh, to know that they're not alone. And as a matter of fact, I just participated in a nationwide PSA for rain, uh, to get the number out and to share the the number, um, which is just so important. And, you know, the, I think, you know, the intersection of all of this for me is that, you know, we all have to, we're all going through a trauma. And for some people, this is, uh, even more traumatic and we should have lots of compassion for, um, for one another, but especially for those who have experienced trauma in the past, uh, because this moment is one where it is destabilizing and there is so much uncertainty and, you know, there, it is sort of a a reopening of, of trauma for so many people. Um, and so, you know, it, it, 
it is so important that we make sure that people are not suffering in silence um, because the implications, you know, the potential long-term implications are, are pretty um, disturbing. You know, survivors uh, of trauma like this have like a 30% higher risk for suicide. You know, there's a, a higher risk for uh, eating disorders, for alcohol abuse, you know, for, for a whole variety of uh, um, kind of, maladaptive behavior or life-threatening behavior. So, um, and it's unnecessary, you know, it's just really important that people know there are resources now. Well, God bless all the incredible work you are doing. And, you know, I I think as the father of two very young girls, when you hear the numbers, it's just so disturbing. And I think, you know, your message loud and clear. I think it's so important for people to have a place to be heard. And, you know, for those for those listening who, who have been fortunate enough to have not experienced, you know, that type of trauma, but are, are blown away by some of the statistics you just rattled off, what what can we all do to help? Like, what what do you what, what can we? I think there are a lot of people who are who are hearing this saying, "Holy cow! Like, we need. I, I want to help." So, like, what what do you want the world to know about this issue? And wh- where can we go? How can we help? Uh, well, you know, first of all, um, responding with compassion and empathy um, is really really important. Um, I would say to validate the person's experience or, you know, when you hear of a story like this or or somebody discloses to you, I would say, you know, validating the experience is very, very important and mirroring to them, believing them, you know, the, the believe survivors, I would say is really, really important. Um, say, I believe you, uh, I would, you know, tell them that they're brave. You know, I think survivors need to hear that they're brave and they're courageous and that they're safe if they're safe. I mean, you know, if they're, if they're in a safe environment, um, to validate that and and mirror that to them and, and for people to know that it is possible to restore wholeness. Um, I think that that is, uh, something that many survivors feel, you know, broken or, uh, not whole, uh, and it's important for um, survivors to know that they can restore wholeness. And I would say that healing is eternal. You know, it is not something that is check the box one and done. Uh, I'm over it. I don't believe in that. I don't, I mean, it is so individual for every survivor. So, I mean, first of all, that also I have to just preface by saying moving forward and healing is individual for for everyone. But but I do believe that healing is an eternal process. Uh, It's a lifetime of of uh, of healing. And, you know, I, I think that those are really important. And I think that what we're seeing is that we really have a fragmented mental health system and one that not everyone has access to. And I can't even explain how important getting mental health and therapy is. You know, it saved my life over and over again. I'm very, very fortunate that 
Uh, when I was in school, I had teachers who saw a lot of red flags, despite my thought that I was a savvy teenager, you know, pulling one over on everyone really um, could have received an Oscar award for my performance as a uh, uh, trying to hide what had happened to me. But I, my teachers saw several red flags and I am so lucky that they did. And I was in a community where uh, I was recommended and referred to for for counseling. It, it definitely saved my life. And it's something that I, you know, when I talk about those self-care tools, like those are the things that have gotten me through. And, you know, being able to access yoga, being able to access uh like I said, therapy, being able to access other survivors and create community where, um, you know, we know what the experiences or shared experience. Um, and something that's been really transformative and maybe something that I'll kind of work on in the future is um, like body art therapy, which, you know, it's, it's a new form of therapy, but probably one of the most transformative experiences I've ever had. Um, I would, I would, I, I, I've done this really cool project, which I haven't shared yet, but I want to do something with it. But it, I had like a, my like story kind of painted on my body. Um, it was really, really transformative. And the, the process was remarkable, just so special. And um, I'd love to be able to offer that to more uh, people. If anyone wants to reach out, I'll connect you with this yeah. incredible so body, body art therapy. therapy. So, so someone is a therapist okay. who's creating art on your body, sort of working yeah. out. Wow. So I'd never yeah. heard of that. Yeah, it's it's a new, you know, uh, form. And uh, it was it's been really, really special for me. Uh, but the other things that not, you know, that's kind of that's a little bit of a harder thing to access. Uh, but I, I would be happy to put people in touch with, um, you know, experts who do this. But um, breath work, body work, yoga, you know, um, my athleticism has been really important to me, um, being able to move forward, uh, or feel control and power over my own body is really important. Um, and then I would say, you know, in what it is, offered me is empathy and compassion for people who are experiencing pain. You know, I am deeply empathetic to, to my community. And, you know, when I see people in pain, I feel it, I really feel it. And, um, makes me, I think maybe more of a, a compassionate leader and has also given me a sense of like intuition. You know, I think survivors, uh, walk around very intuitively and always kind of assessing the room, assessing their environment, um, kind of like a, a hypervigilance. And I think for me as a leader, that skill has become a skill set, you know, that 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 sort of a response became a skill set. Um, and and I think even in this covid crisis, you know, when I think about the initial first days of how Lifeway responded, it was because I had this intuitive sense of impending doom. Um, Gavin DeBecker, who wrote The Gift of Fear, he talks about this intuition that we have this this gut feeling. And, you know, I really rely on that gut feeling a lot because it's always served me right. Like it's been right. And it, even in this responding it from, you know, the Lifeways uh, perspective, we were able to build up stockpile of a product and build up inventory and, uh, 
you know, we created like seven weeks of inventory in the first two weeks of March. That's like unheard of. Um, and, and nobody would do that. And that's just, it, it wasn't, and, and that really helped us respond when we saw the surge in orders in the coming days, we had it, you know, we were ready. Um, and so, so I think there's a lot to be that I've learned that I've kind of taken with me, uh, that, that to, to help me in my life. So suffice to say, you've been through a lot and as a, you know, mission driven female entrepreneur who's, who's thriving, what advice do you have for other aspiring female entrepreneurs and leaders out there who are trying to make it in this world? Yeah. Yeah. I will. I, first of all, I just definitely believe that the universe has your back. Um, the universe has your back and, uh, to believe in yourself, uh, to walk into every room, even virtual zoom rooms, walk into every room. Like you belong, uh, know that you belong, know that you have something valuable and critical, your experience to bring to the table. Um, right now we need a diversity of knowledge, a diversity of experience. We need young people at the table. You know, we even need kids at the table telling us what they need. We need wisdom and older folks at the table. We need, you know, every color at the table, every immigrant group represented. These are all communities that have their own needs and we should be responding to all of them. But um, yeah, the, the, the universe has your back. Um, trust the process. Uh, that it's going to be okay. Uh, I have to tell myself all the time, it's going to be okay. Uh, and know that, feel that it's going to be okay. Even when it feels like the world is collapsing beneath you, uh, to know that, you know, you can, you can have your own back. You can, um, you know what you need uh, to trust your gut, to uh, believe that everything is happening, not to you, but for you. Um, that, that we are all, you know, here on a journey and this journey is happening for us and we're here to learn something, um, and to, to, um, you know, I, you know, to me, it's to leave the world in a better place than what I found it. Um, that, that is a, a big drive for me, but yeah, I think, you know, not to waste time on being stuck in fear, um, that never worked for me. Uh, it's always been just believing that and, and having a deep sense of faith that everything is going to work out for the best. So did you have that deep sense of faith when you took over at age 27 after losing your father? Like, if you, I'm curious, if you could go back to you, then what advice would you give yourself? I worried a lot more than I should have. I mean, I definitely let, uh, the anxiety, the anxiety was, um, the level of cortisol that I was operating on was really, really intense. Honestly, I'm still tired from it. I, you know, for me, I feel like I've been to war. I've been to battle and it's really hard for me to come down. Um, it's very hard for me to like rest to be still, to meditate. That's why I say meditation is not easy for me. I think it's really hard to be with ourselves, to be with our own thoughts. But in terms of my um, belief in, in my, my success or 
I, I always did believe that we were going to do great. I always had nothing but positivity for our future um, and a sense that, you know, just by me thinking that we were going to do well, by setting the intention that I could manifest that. And I do strongly believe in setting intentions and manifesting them. And um, it, it's worked out for me, you know, it, it, it has worked out. I mean, I certainly use data and science and research and stuff to make those decisions. But but really, you know, I, I have always believed that everything was going to work out. And even if it was really painful, if it was really hard, um, that, you know, there was even light in the darkest of days and that I could always find just a pinprick of light. Um, I've had a couple close calls, definitely, you know, had a couple close calls where I did not think that I was going to go and, you know, make, make it through. Um, and for that, I'm just, I am grateful for my community and the various people who showed up in my life, who I think of, you know, kind of as angels. I mean, I'll, I'll get a little spiritual, but yeah, um, there were definitely some angels on my shoulders, um, helping me, uh, and, and some of those, you know, the people who came into my life to help, um, I'm grateful to. So in, in this journey, you know, whether they were angels or, entrepreneur just people out there i'm curious like who, who inspired you in this process like who who did you admire from afar I, I, i'm always curious with entrepreneurs there seems to be whether it's a, a brand or a person you say i love what they're doing or this person over here inspires me and it's part of that yes. journey i'm curious who was that for you Oh, there's been such a great list of people. So first off, um, Christy Hefner, who took over for Hugh Hefner, um, Playboy. Um, my father pointed her out to me when I was about 18 years old and there was a special on her on CNN. And my father said, Julie, come watch a special on Christy. I want you to do this for, for Lifeway. You're going to take over too. And so Christy, and she was also really, really young and she took over her business. And, and at the time, this was in the eighties before women were leading companies like this. Uh, so I really looked to her as a role model. I mentioned Oprah was a huge role model to me. Um, and then, uh, I, one of my dear best friends is Katrina Markov, who's the founder of Vosges chocolate, these incredible truffles. But before I knew her, I had only read about her. I just became CEO. There weren't that many women in food at my, our age. Um, and I read about her and I started stalking her and writing her emails and finding her. She was here in Chicago. She was doing this beautiful work around, um, there was just so much spirituality to her creative process, but I loved her creativity and we've become best friends since that time. Um, Sarah Krause from Swell, the founder of Swell Bottle. I love what she's doing. You know, um, the sustainability element really, you know, her business model is changing the world and saving the world. Um, so I love Sarah and Swell Bottle, and it's just so fashionable and beautiful. And you know, now more than ever, I think we're we're thinking about um, taking our um, beverages that are you know it, on the go or like it, in a way that doesn't take more plastic. I think we're we're all concerned about that. Um, and then um, 
let's see. Uh, oh, I love Bumble. I love what Whitney is doing with Bumble. I think, you know, dismantling old power structures is what she's doing. And I couldn't be more, um, and my dog is barking. I don't know if you can hear that. This is COVID-19. This is the way podcast <laughs> right. interviews roll. We got dogs, we got kids. I've had our three-year-old come and do a podcast. So all good. Oh yeah. That's true. World leaders are having their kids on their laps. Yes. Well, um, yeah, Whitney from Bumble and what she's doing with dismantling these old archaic power structures and old ways of, of dating or meeting people, I think is brilliant. Um, really putting women at the driver's seat and why not? Um, so I love what she's doing. But there's, there's just so many remarkable entrepreneurs and um, it's going to be really interesting to see what, you know, class of 2020 does. I am totally rooting for them. I think they have so many opportunities to um, really disrupt so many different industries. And they have, you know, they, they are so native with the, you know, technology and apps and I think that the level of innovation that's going to happen to solve for this disruption and the pain points that so many businesses and, and individuals are experiencing, that that level of innovation is going to be warped really fast, you know, time warped fast. So um, it's, it's going to be great to see how 20 class of 2020 and, and a whole new young generation of entrepreneurs kind of um, really rises to the occasion and uh, brings us all back. I think we're all counting. On so I'm curious, yeah. like, where's, you know, where, where's Lifeway going? And then what about you personally? What are you excited about in the, in the future? Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a real like I mentioned, it's a teachable moment about food and wellness and self-care. So we're really excited that we're able to respond in, in this crisis right now. You know, we've we've already donated 70,000 servings of uh, kefir to healthcare workers and food pantries across the country. And, you know, this was an overhaul. This was not an easy thing to do in a global pandemic at a, in a time in a global pandemic, in addition to surging demand in grocery. Uh, this was, uh, you know, really challenging. And I'm so proud of the team because, you know, to overnight uh, increase, you know, uh, production and logistics and the whole supply chain, when you had 50% of food consumption came from hospitality and food service, and now it went 100% to grocery and at-home consumption. So, you know, so you have that surge, you have the demand at, at food pantries. I mean, I was just over at Wrigley Field, which has been turned into, instead of a baseball field for the Cubs, now it has become Chicago's COVID hunger response ground zero with um, the pantry taking over and lines of cars around the block where used to be lines for baseball games and concert headliners are now lines of cars for, um, for food pantries and, and people who are first time users of, of a food pantry. So, you know, I think that we are going to be in this place for quite a while, but, um, I think that we're just really feeling proud that we're in a place to provide food and be part of the nation's food supply system. Now more than ever, we feel the purpose to our work. You know, I, I get asked a lot, how do you motivate your team? And honestly, I haven't had to do much motivation because they have so much 
commitment and dedication to, to being part of the food supply and, and keeping the grocery store shelves and stocked and keeping food pantries stocked. So, you know, they, they don't need a lot of motivation. There's a, a huge sense of, there's a sacred privilege that comes to feeding people. And I, I talk about this all the time. It is a privilege a sacred privilege to feed people um, that, that goes back to the beginning of time. So I think that we're just going to continue to scale that, uh, continue to help our retail partners uh, be there for their consumers, uh, continue to share the information, because I think that it's still very widely unknown about, you know, what the benefits of kefir are. And, you know, I think that many people are looking for like an inspirational story right now or business inspirational story. And I, I hope that people can look to our story and see uh, the various crises and challenges that we've um, kind of had to face and overcome and that, you know, we continue to go through those rocky moments, but that we thrive. Ultimately, we always end up doing better. We learn more. We get stronger. We learn how resilient we are. We learn how, um, how, how uh, you know, to show up for each other. So I think there's uh, much more of that kind of storytelling to be done. Um, and then, you know, for me personally, I kind of touched on, you know, writing a book. Um, I would like to, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, fix, uh, finally write that memoir. I wrote one book, The Keeper Cookbook, but there is just so many stories that I wanted to share and some things that are a little bit more challenging, you know, to be honest about. Um, and, and things that, you know, would, would probably be hard to write and hard to read. So I think I'm probably building up my own bravery and courage with, with sharing those stories and kind of uh, getting ready to, to tell uh, some of the more challenging things. It's really easy to share the, the, the highlights, all of the, the pretty things. It's not so easy to share the dark things and to let people see that. And I think, you know, on one hand, we have a deep, craving and desire to be seen, but it's also the scariest thing. But I do think it's so important. And I, and I, I think it's important to leave that story for other generations of young people and old people who, um, you know, will, will, I hope find glimmers and, and things, nuggets that they can take with them in their life. Well, you should absolutely write a memoir. <laughs> and to close, to clo I'll close on a, on a lighter note. We'll, we'll, we'll segue to the first book. And I'm curious, you know, in quarantine as the father of two little girls, like, do you have a favorite go-to kefir meal in quarantine? Oh my God. My girls have been making the most incredible meals with Kiever. Like it's incredible. They have become Mitchell and star chefs in quarantine. <laughs> I've been set. Um, we make a ton of smoothies and smoothie bowls and they um, post their pictures of their smoothie bowls and uh, they are very, very proud of them. But we have been making the most incredible smoothie bowls with all of these cool super fruits and dragon fruit and uh, matcha smoothies. So my favorite is like um, some of our keeper with a scoop of matcha, uh, some bananas, some pineapple, a little bit of honey. That's really, really delicious. Um, but yeah, so it's so lots of smoothies. 
and then I also really love just roasting a bunch of vegetables. You can kind of throw in whatever vegetables you have, roast those up, then throw that in a blender. And then I pour my uh, kefir on top of that or mix it in. It turns into this creamy, delicious, healthy vegetable soup that's like really nurturing and it's like a hug from the inside. Um, and then I also really love like overnight oats and overnight chia. I I'll take chia seeds and pour kefir in there. And that turns into a really delicious, easy breakfast the next morning, throw some fruit on it or whatever. Really delicious. There's a lot of easy things you can do and you can just drink it straight out of the bottle. That's the other thing. You don't have to cook with it. I think people are so busy and sick of cooking. They just want a quick protein source. So just drinking it straight out of the bottle. I usually write my name on my bottle. So nobody else drinks it (laughs) because I just drink it out of the out of the bottle but yeah I love it sign me up for the the hug from the inside I like that one yeah (laughs) well (laughs) Julie thank you so much for all the incredible work you are doing in the world Uh, amen amen thank you thank you thank you so much it is uh it is a privilege to, to be able to do it 